Hello everyone, welcome to Wickham High's Talk Us Through podcast. Today we have Mr. Kledge talking about The Great Gatsby and Prohibition in the United States. So thank you very much for agreeing to be on our podcast. Um, I thought we could start with just a very brief overview of the plot and then sort of the significance of the era that it's set in. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's my privilege. Um, And The the Great Gatsby is, um, for me, I'm going to summarise it as attraction and repulsion together. Um, Sometimes the things we love are the things which harm us the most. So how does it do that? Let's give you an overview of the plot. It's not a long uh, novel. It's a novella, about 120 pages, so uh, easy to read. Um, And it follows uh, an... Uh, Nick Carraway, who is not the main character, he moves from the Midwest, this kind of amorphous mass of uh, Kansas and all these flat plains where they grow corn and nothing tremendously exciting happens, and he, uh, uh, he uh, moves to New York uh, to make money in bonds because uh, that's what you do in, in 1920s America. You move places to chase your dreams to make um, the American dream. <laughs> to, rate, to make rather shady money, and I say shady in many different ways. Um, and so, so um, what's the significance there? He um, already we have an, it's a story of migration from one place to another. Nick, uh, our little um, protagonist, goes there uh, and he gets a cottage um, next to a huge mansion with a very mysterious owner. Um, where he hears all sorts of rumours swirling around, um, who owns it, he's not clear, um, uh, and, and so on. He also, it turns out, he lives near Daisy, his cousin, uh, just across the water. So um, in terms of the part of New York we're talking about, think the Hamptons, think Long Island, think huge mansions on Atlantic Ocean front property uh, worth uh, a tremendous amount of money again. My question is, like, to the architects, who decided to put a mini cottage next to all of these? You have these big, tall houses. Well, it's it's good that it's there as well, because you get to see the very clear class divide more so than anywhere else. And, yeah, so already we have um, class in terms of where you live, class in terms of what you can do. So we're still very early early on in the book. Across the water, so it's um, West Egg and East Egg, these two kind of islands, they're called, um... Uh, and now I, I have to throw my hands up and say, I can't remember which one is which. It's like stalagmites and stalactites. You're never going to remember which one is which. Gats... Sorry, spoiler. Gatsby <laughs> and Nick live in West Egg and Daisy lives in the East Egg. And East Egg is the sort of fashionable village or whatever, I think. Thank you very much, Eloise. Yes, Sophie. Um, So the names West Egg and East Egg, is there meant to be some absurdist undertone to the weird names or is that what they're actually called? I think he... He got inspiration from something called Great Neck or something, but I don't... Yeah, it was... It's... Uh, it, uh, on some level, yes, it's... Um, uh, you know how you have the, all these slightly random American place names, like Rapid Falls or... Yes, um, very um, descriptive. Yeah, it's... Or, or something, Sp- Colorado Springs or... You know, it's... Um, which we're not, we're not used to. We have ancient place names going back way... You know, in, uh, thousands of years. So, uh, which leads me in, into another thing. It's a very young nation. Uh-huh. But back to the plot, so what actually happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you've got uh, West Egg and East Egg. Um, Gatsby lives on, sorry, what did you say? West Egg. West, West Egg. That's more seen as the kind of gosh, slightly tasteless, up-and-coming, or who are these guys with their new money? Mm-hmm. East Egg, older money, uh, established aristocrats, um, uh, old fortunes from the uh, 1870s onwards when uh, America is essentially um, building itself, railroads, steel, 
uh, finance and so on. Um, who lives there? Daisy and her husband, Tom. Daisy is uh, Nick's cousin. Uh, uh, very beautiful, often characterised as a little bit fragile, and I'm going to might read some quotes out later on that. Uh, and who is Tom like? Well, big, beefy, cruel, rich, uh, handsome in a in his own way, uh, and thick as two short planks. I imagined him with a broken nose to complete the image. <laughs> the, foot, the football star. Yeah. Previous football star. Uh, and still a very physically powerful man, even though he's, um, his uh, glory has faded, so to speak. So um, where does the name Gatsby come in? So there's parties going on throughout the summer um, from Nick's uh, big mysterious neighbour's house. We never actually see Gatsby until much further in. So Nick goes to one of these parties. Uh, he's overwhelmed by the glamour, the all the alcohol, of course, um, <laughs> all the beautiful women and the illegal the, alcohol. <laughs> and we'll we'll talk about that in, in a second uh, as a kind of moral lesson for for um, the attraction and repulsion. Uh, he and he just seems to stumble into Gatsby, who's almost like a inconsequential guest at his own party. Mm. Um, and uh, you know what I think we can relate. Have we ever been like, we're the centre of attention, but we don't really want to be at the centre of attention? You'd rather just let the the kind of... Um, That's interesting. I, I have birthday parties. I, so I, it. I took it the other way. I took it, it, maybe this is just me impressing myself onto Gatsby, <laughs> but like hiding in the party, waiting for someone to go, oh my goodness, it's him. And then I go, what? No. <laughs> But, you see, I think that you're the very opposite. <laughs> People would think that you were the host. And you'd be like, no, 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 I just, no, I just show up. I didn't even get an invitation. <laughs> yeah. uh, speaking of people who don't get invitations, basically all of the guests at Gatsby's party. Mm-hmm. He seems, and in that way, Gatsby, already before even meeting him, he's built up a kind of mythology uh, of, uh, of an almost impossible man. He's, um, uh, in the novel, it says things like um, people... There are all these rumours swirling around, which already makes us um, distrust the veracity of information. What can we trust about this guy? He's, um, he's a cousin of the Kaiser. He killed a German spy. Um, all these uh, myths floating around. And finally, we see the man is actually just a human being. An elegant young roughneck of about thirty. It should, yeah, I don't think we've mentioned because it's it's set in nineteen twenty two, I think, mm-hmm. and obviously this is just after the end of the First World War, so all of this is relevant. It's not just. <laughs> <laughs> so before we we talk about the rest of the plot, then we have to talk about 1920s, 1920s America. Well, how do you summarize it? It's a country that's just fought a war, but which did not suffer the effects of the war. Mm-hmm. So. Um, uh, by comparison, Britain lost 700,000 young men uh, in World War I alone, uh, in a population of 45 million. Now, I don't mean to downplay what America suffered in World War I, but 100,000 men in a nation of about 100 million is obviously a different scale and impact of suffering. So um, they, uh, they came in slightly late into World War I, obviously a little bit of a sore point amongst some British people, but we won't talk <laughs> about that. Um, and in some ways, actually, quite frankly, benefited from World War I. Mm-hmm. Principally, um, uh, Europe is wrecked physically, morally, emotionally, spiritually, and America steps in, fills the production void. So it's really good times for American farmers, American manufacturers, and therefore the people at the top skimming off the profits. It's um, coming into its own sort of superpower or whatever, beginning to sort of take on that role. And they're all already talking about themselves almost as the inheritors of the British Empire. 
Go on, Saskia. So there's like an element of invincibility about them. Already, yes, because they're also separated from world affairs by two great oceans, uh, as they are, uh, as they have been throughout their history, um, and um, it, it's uh, this really builds on this sense of invincibility builds on uh, manifest destiny. Uh, this was the doctrine that America is destined to a um, forget the uh, to not to repeat the mistakes of Europe because apparently they think they're special. Um, <laughs> to wipe out all of the indigenous peoples already living there, or so. that they had the right to colonize the continent, and um, they they would never explicitly say that, but that's the yeah, implicit. That, yes. um, yeah. um, so, and this reflected in the, in the history. Imagine. Uh, coming on the Mayflower, the uh, first ship over in America, you 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 have nothing, quite literally nothing, uh, and you found what you believe is a new nation. Of course, there already was a nation there, the Native Americans. Slightly inconvenient fact for some Americans. Um, and you, what do you do over about three centuries? You expand ever, ever, ever westward. Um, uh, you colonize. You, you not only establish your original thirteen colonies. You keep going west until you hit the Mississippi. You keep going west until you hit the Rockies, and then you keep going west. And the only thing which stops you is the Pacific Ocean, because mm-hmm. you ain't Aquaman. <laughs> you can't just live in the ocean. So um, already, uh, and this is an area of land about two and a half times the size of Europe. Now you might think it's a long way to uh, Edinburgh on a on a road journey. Just imagine um, several days across America, even nowadays. So it's a sense of, um, what do we have there? We have America as a constantly growing, very young country, full of opportunity, uh, full of, uh, as you said earlier, um, the mythology of the American dream. Um, how do people summarize that? You can achieve anything if you work hard. That's one way, but also it's your past doesn't matter in the American dream. You, when you come to America, especially as an immigrant off the Mayflower or modern steamships and you look at the Statue of Liberty, oh my God, I have come to America. You have a sense of a blank slate. Be a self-made man and start a nuclear family or whatever. (laughs) Uh, And and also make lots of money as well. Mm -hmm. So, so many things which we haven't got time to talk about tie into this, the idea of the cowboy, rugged individualism and so on. But, show you back to Gatsby. Um, so where, what happens with Gatsby and why is he such a hero in some ways, the great Gatsby? So he's uh, still in love with, you guessed it, Daisy. Uh, five years ago, Daisy rejected him. Audience reaction? Oh. Um, so uh, he re- she rejected him because he was poor and penniless. All he had on, almost quite literally, was his army uniform. Uh, and she goes off and marries Tom instead, although it's not necessarily, don't take this as Daisy being like a... Um, a gold digger or a materialist she's really pressured into it by her family and she's been torn ever since since then she's made she kind of made her peace with this um, Tom Buchanan who uh, is found with a chambermaid on their wedding night in their hotel room so you can see this guy um, is not the most loyal of gentlemen shall we say um, and they have a child together, and it's very clearly an unhappy marriage, even before Gatsby comes on the scene. He's also very controlling, and it, like you were saying before, with her fragility, and also how he's physically... He, he's kind of like... It's like a physical manifestation of his power over her. It's like very imposing and everything. Um, and yet, uh, he they seem to be in a marriage together. Um, and I won't spoil uh, how the book ends, um, but it may prove a surprise for some readers. 
So Gatsby worms his way in. Uh, sorry, I know that's not a nice way to describe what he does, but he worms his way into Nick, uh, Nick's kind of friendship. Uh, it's very awkward. Gatsby himself is clearly almost um, not quite comfortable in his wealth. Um, he worms his way into Nick's friendship uh, in order to get to Daisy. Although I'm not saying he doesn't, um, he isn't relative, reasonably nice to Nick. Um, and then the court, the recourtship, if you like, starts with um, Daisy. Uh, and the rest of the story, which I won't say anything more about, is this the um, the uncomfortable love triangle between Daisy, Tom, and Gatsby. Uh, not and there's other significant characters as well, uh, and how that's resolved. So on the one hand, we have the almost the damsel in distress being fought over. We have old money Tom, um, uh, damsel in distress Daisy. We have old money Tom, cruel, arrogant but very comfortable in his old money, and he knows it. He knows he's got the upper hand. He knows he has the social respect. Gatsby, new money, and we'll talk about how he made his money in a second. Uh, Gatsby, new money, not quite comfortable, but he has the history with Daisy, and he seems to have captured something about Daisy's heart, which Nick, uh, which uh, Tom never could. Um, and how that resolves, well, we've all been in uh, awkward friendships, awkward relationships, who do you like more, who do you like less, if you like that person more, you're somehow betraying me. Um, and we've uh, even, even if it's not a particularly healthy emotion, jealousy is something we've all felt at one point or another. So it's very, uh, it has a kind of universal appeal, uh, I would say. How did Gatsby make his money? So in 1920, um, after a movement beginning um, throughout the 1910s, but uh, building up to a, a kind of climax in 1920, uh, the temperance movement, um, um, prohibition is enacted. So the sale, transport, manufacture and consumption of alcohol is now illegal. Um, why did I'm, they do that? Was it, why did they do that? Was it like... To appeal to um, certain members of the Protestant, I believe, part of... So the Protestant, um, uh, the Protestant religion is arguably the religion of America, but of yes. course there's always been a huge Catholic a primarily Italian and Irish immigrant um, Catholic community, not to mention other Europeans. But yes, there was within the Protestant mm. faction of America, if you like, there was certainly a kind of um, um, uh, a kind of uh, this Puritan temperance movement. Mm. When we think of the word Puritan, we think of kind of religious restriction, um, and that is for our purposes quite useful here. So one of the uh, advertising posts at the time it uh, has a bunch of women on it saying. Lips that touch liquor shall not touch ours. So it's very sort of pure... Repressive. Repre yeah, despite being... Painting themselves as so forward-thinking, it was also incredibly... Ah, interesting that you say forward-thinking. Different types of forward... I, I would say America is forward-thinking in different ways. Maybe in, let's say, technology and economics, not necessarily in social um, social mores. In that, in that way, were they attempting to sort of emulate... I don't know, maybe like the British Empire or any previous empire. They wanted that same, like the Victorian status, like prestige. Of but I would, I would say that I mean, even since its inception, America has been a nation of very like many different, you know, bits thrown into the mixture. So it's always been a country of like contrast. People believe in different things. Yeah, that's true. The Civil War, everything. So. Uh, def so one interesting example is actually Sir Winston Churchill. His mother was an American socialite, his father a British lord. And the American, her, that American socialite had a, um, uh, uh, was an heiress to a financial fortune. 
huge fortunes made in America very, very quickly. We're talking about uh, John D. Rockefeller, for example, only recently has Elon Musk actually, depending on how we calculate it, only recently has Elon Musk even overtaken the great American robber barons, they were called. John D. Rockefeller for oil, uh, Andrew Carnegie for railroads, um, sorry, steel, uh, and um, Vanderbilt for railroads. So, and notice those three things are the things which almost construct a country as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of money to be made uh, in, in perfectly legitimate industrial practices, although as you can imagine, health and safety was, um, well, the, the words didn't really exist. <laughs> so the, the amount of people who died constructing America, it's railroads, buildings and so on, um, is uh, numbers in the tens of thousands. Is this, I don't know if this is wrong or not, but in terms of, I think it's quite interesting how there was still the concept of old money and new money in America, and yet there, the historically the sort of contempt that I think exists, well, between Europe and America, and what, in terms of Europeans going, oh, they're all new money over there, mm-hmm. just generally anyway, and then there's there's already that distinction happening in America. I don't know if this is a good example, but in um, new money and newer money. Have you read the <laughs> I have read Lolita, yes. By Not to do anything Nabba. with Nabba. the rest of the thing, but mm-hmm. Humber Humber is a specific character. His incredible arrogance is being, oh, I'm from, I'm mm-hmm. mis- mysteriously European, I am so kind of above these people, I'm above all of, yeah, it reminds me of that slightly. So we've got a couple of really interesting concepts. That's called cultural cringe, very specifically, <laughs> when you when you worship another culture but you want to be better than them but you're separate to them. So we'll come back to that in a second. The idea of new money can be partly explained by prohibition. So as I've said, there's a lot of new money being made, new money fortunes, um, being made through legitimate uh, capitalism, essentially. Uh, And what you can regard in the 1870s, uh, American capitalism is turbocharged capitalism. It has virtually unlimited space, unlimited natural resources. Um, uh, as, as we said, because of the uh, colonization of the West. Uh, and that partly explains its, its uh, success ever since, because it, it seems to combine almost everything a country needs. Yeah. Um, linking back to The Great Gatsby, could you then draw a kind of almost synecdoche between East Egg and West Egg, and then like the East Coast and the West Coast of America, and how the East Coast is much older money, and it's seen as much um, more elitist, and the West Coast it's is all like- kind of new L.A., Gross. Big things happening on a small scale. Yeah. yeah. Um, absolutely. And um, East yeah. Egg and uh, West Egg are a kind of microcosm, like a mini version of America, at least the rich part of America, because mm. we also have the Valley of Ashes, which we'll talk about. But, it, but it also, in that way, all of the characters sort of, they're massive stereotypes of what they're representing, like Tom. I was going to say, an even sort of smaller money, Tom. And like you were Gatsby. saying, they're all the kind of archetypes. Oh, 100%. Yeah. E- each character does represent something. Although, um, perhaps more than, let's say, an inspector calls, which um, it's it's a play often done at GCC. Every character clearly has might, might as well have upper cap uh, upper class capitalists stamped on their forehead. Um, they're a little bit more subtle in Gatsby, and, and that's part of the reason I, I really like it. Um, yes, Gatsby represents new money, but also he represents the that feeling we all have of trying to uh, a recapture the past because he tries to recapture the past with Daisy. Uh, and also the niggling doubt somewhere deep down that you're never going to recapture the past. Mm-hmm. It's in the past. We live in a forward flow of time. Um, and you can never recapture hit that, the kind of purity of that love, even though he's made this huge fortune, essentially to appeal to Daisy. How did he make it? So, as I said, Prohibition, 1920. <laughs> um, alcohol is made illegal. 
And prostitution is actually also another good example of a vice which is virtually impossible to control. Uh, those two things have seemed to have existed in the vast majority of the world's cultures around the world, past and present, and probably future as well. Um, so, of course, just because uh, America signs a law saying you, you cannot transport, manufacture alcohol, and so on, doesn't mean people were uh, obviously going to follow that law. There was widespread flouting. We can't, I'm not sure of a, an exact parallel in our society. So, for example, um, there are um, some drugs in our society which have a certain level of toleration. They're illegal, but still, if you've, the police catch you with them, you're often let off with a severe slap on the wrist or something. In this case, was was the same tolerance there, or was it cracked down more, very hard? On far it? more. There were far more tolerance because the police were so paid corrupt. off. Mm. Um, so, one of my favourite stories was a treasurer. So, the US Treasury... Um, involved with bills and so on. They were the ones um, assigned to try and stamp out alcohol. <laughs> Good luck with that. Um, and a treasury, there's a little story um, with a treasury agent who goes to various American cities and he times himself. How, um, how quickly can I get some alcohol? This, yeah. uh, and he says, okay, he notes down Chicago, 20 minutes. Um, New York, 10 minutes or something. New Orleans, 35 seconds. <laughs> because the taxi driver, as soon as he steps out of the train station, he says, um, so do you know where I can get a drink? And the taxi driver says, hey, have a whiskey. Um, <laughs> it's openly flouted. The police are paid off. Um, and even Al Capone is said to have joked about it. Um, a, a certain element of hypocrisy as well. Um, when I um, when I serve alcohol to working class people, it's called uh, booziness. When I serve alcohol to upper class people, it's called hospitality. Mm -hmm. So you do have a sense of um, um, uh, hypocrisy there. I think that's a very good place. Exactly. You know, we were talking about no, no, about um, using the words I and using the words one. One, yes. It's <laughs> <Does> not <laughs> go on. And yeah, and uh, the one. One is not amused. Um, so Ameri Europe has a, a kind of couple of advantages over America. It is the mother of modern America. Uh, and yeah, in that I'm saying that the Native Americans are not, uh, their cultural lineage almost stops to an extent after the, uh, the domination of white Europeans uh, in one of the worst geno genocides in human history. So not only from Britain, from whom they get the language, of course, but uh, there's always, um, most um, Americans now are actually ethnically descended from Germans or Scandinavians. Mm -hmm. um, uh, of course, we've had huge Irish communities, Italian, Czech, Polish, um, and so on and so forth, not to mention from the rest of the world. So a lot of Americans quite literally do come from Europe or um, especially in this time, 1920s, there was a wave of immigration starting 1870s all the way to the present day, really. So quite literally, a lot of, a lot of Americans are going to be foreigners. Mm -hmm. um, whereas nowadays, um, that is too true to an extent, but also you have Americans who say, oh, my grandfather came on in 1880 on the boat and saw Ellis Island and so on and so forth. So um, Europe is seen as the older um, parent continent, if you like, crowded, it's physically smaller, it's more densely populated, it's had an endless series of wars, um, even in American history, so World War I is only the most recent, we had the Napoleonic Wars, uh, the various, the Seven Years' War, civil wars and so on. So uh, Europe is seen as overcrowded, religiously restrictive, um, and yet culturally uh, grand and older, uh, the home of uh, Rome and Greece before it as well. So yeah, they've always been trying to emulate Europe, but also saying we're better than Europe, we're morally superior to Europe as well. Mm. 
It's also quite interesting. I don't know how much they were painting themselves as a sort of land of the free mm. around this time. With I mean, I know you say they were openly flouted, but the amount of the restrictions that were sort of imposed on people. Um, I wanted to say something about the American dream, but mm. you can get into that. Also, the fact that where Jay Gatsby made his money. Mm. So he makes his money. Um, he calls them drugstores. It seems to be a euphemism for bootlegging, uh, illegal alcohol, uh, which um, distributed on a vast scale in the United States. Essentially, you, if you were careful, as long as you didn't drink in front of a police officer, <laughs> you could go and get a drink in a, any typical American city, as long as you weren't stupid about it. And you would have to be prepared to be arrested if the speakeasy, the nickname for a, a place to drink alcohol um, with, was raided by the police. Yeah. Uh, and then you would, be, yeah, you would be let off with a slap on the wrist. Um, however, I've got to say, I've just realised that in terms of what we're talking about, 1920s America, we're really talking about the 1920s East Coast the liber- and the rich part of them. Um, we also have to say at this time as well, think of the Midwest, think of the Deep South, think of rural. Far, yeah, rural and also many ordinary mid-sized towns. We don't have the same kind of um, uh, to- a tolerance of alcohol, although uh, that you've always been able to get it. Um, and also the same kind of glamour and this, this idea of um, Gatsby and the incredible parties. A lot of people in, in America in the 1920s are still uh, left behind uh, by the economic boom uh, in grinding, grinding poverty. Mm-hmm. Now, this was written in 1922, so it's, not, um, it's a full seven years before the Wall Street, Wall Street crash. But since we're reading it as modern readers, we have to realise all this glamour is built on a house of cards. Mm-hmm. It's gonna fall down big time in 1929. Still one of the worst um, economic crashes in history. Partly due to USA loaning money to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and um, those loans becoming bad, uh, creating knock-on effects. Um, uh, America, but also things like American farmers being um, covered. Um, victims of the Dust Bowl, mm-hmm. where uh, soil erosion essentially destroys American farmers' livelihoods. Mm-hmm. It was a real perfect storm of, um, of, uh, in the 1930s. And therefore, uh, the people who grew up in the 1930s, who were 10 to 20 years old and then fought in World War II as 20-year-olds to 30-year-olds, they're called the greatest generation um, because they, they grew up with this hardship and then they liberated the world in the 1940s. And even this um, where... The Great Gatsby, when rather the Great Gatsby set, as modern readers, like you were saying, looking back on it, it, we get the sense of how fleeting it is, as well as just Daisy and Gatsby's relationship, but the entire thing because it's all temporary. And again, not spoiling the end of the book, but I definitely, yeah. I think, as an, especially considering that it was written only three years after when it's set, it's incredibly self-aware. Not maybe. Uh, a self-aware reflection on American society, and particularly in Long Island area, um, because there is that you, you, yeah, you do get the feeling throughout the whole novel that that Fitzgerald knows that it's sort of built on a house of cards, and even though obviously he hadn't lived through the Great Depression or Wall Street Crash or whatever yet, yeah. Um, and people were there only a few lone voices were thinking, okay, this is uh, built on debt essentially. Mm. Um, and the stock market is, it is uh, overheating. There's a nice little story from a, a stockbroker in early 1929, so a couple of months before the crash. Mm. Um, and he, he's going to work, he's getting his shoe shine by the shoe shine boy. And the shoe shine boy says, you should buy US steel, the stocks are really hot. Mm. And he, the stockbroker goes into work and he says, sell everything. 
Why, why? When the shoeshine boy is giving you tips, it's time to get out of the market. It's overheating. It's built on, it's, uh, built on simply the image of wealth, not actual real wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, but that's a discussion from the, 19, uh, the late 1920s. What I was thinking is, is yeah, we, we haven't read anything out. Um, and I'd like, you to, uh, I'd like you to consider the following by the critic Arnold Weinstein. He says, the great Gatsby is the poetry of American capitalism. And it is a lovely, it is a beautifully poetic book, bordering on the absurd. And that's part of what I love about it. Mm-hmm. There's phrases there which are just really Fitzgerald, you beautiful man. <laughs> just, um, he knows it's kind of ridiculous to write. So, um, so yeah, in terms of anything else we, we need to know about the overall plots. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's a, a very energetic young society. Um, quite hypocritical, um, tolerating obviously alcohol, uh, corruption, um, and it's the ultimate symbol of new money because he makes his money not through even industrial capitalism rather than inherited wealth like Europeans might respect, but literally through an illegal um, alcohol empire. So in chapter one, uh, Nick, um, he has this very uh, non-linear narrative, he jumps back and forth he, you really have to be fully awake when you read it. He doesn't do an, a chronological narrative. And we, we get introduced to Gatsby by reputation before we meet him in chapter three out of 12, uh, out of 10, sorry. So he says uh, in chapter one, only Gatsby, the name, I'm not gonna do an American accent, I do apologize. <laughs> only Gatsby, the name who gives his, uh, the man who gives his name to this book was exempt from my reaction. I wanted uh, to leave everything behind. Gatsby, who represented everything for which I have an unaffected scorn. If personality is an unbroken series of successful gestures, then there was something gorgeous about him, some heightened sensitivity to the promises of life, as if he were related to one of those intricate machines that register earthquakes 10,000 miles away. The thing I think with that is you see Nick being almost taken in by the mythology surrounding Gatsby as well, even though he's supposed to be us looking on. Well, yeah, I was going to say, do you think that he's a self-insert by Fitzgerald, or is he just because he's quite a blank character, isn't he? He's more yeah. of like purely a narrator than an actual. He's definitely not a protagonist, that's for sure. It's mm-hmm. more him observing everything else. So partly the, the moral judgment he gives and the almost confused moral judgment he gives are partly standings for us. So uh, he represents everything for which I hate, um, um, unaffected scorn, and yet there was something gorgeous about him. Come on, dude, make your mind up. Do you like this guy or not? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, uh, and, and this really um, kind of tells me, uh, th- th- this is one of the most relatable things, even though it sounds so absurd. Who hasn't met a person who is absolutely great fun at a party or f- in short bursts, but they're actually quite tiring because you know sometimes they're a little bit surface level. Mm-hmm. Um, and this isn't a criticism because we, we all have our superficial moments. You know, sometimes we, we say things to get a reaction. Well, Gatsby is personality as a series of successful gestures. Hence why I talk about modernist emptiness. He's beautiful, and yet what is beneath the beauty? Not a whole lot. But that, does that mean it's not worth it? Um, no, I, I would argue sometimes be- we can appreciate beauty just for the sake of beauty, as long as we know how we're compromising ourselves. Um, whether it be uh, his shallowness or the illicit source of his wealth, and so on. Um, I just... Wanted, I mean, it's all related, isn't it? Mm. Um, 
as a sort of deconstruction of the American dream, something I really like, well, not really like, is the fact that um, this isn't really a spoiler. So basically, uh, Tom, <laughs> Tom Buchanan <laughs> is cheating on Daisy with oh, a he's woman been doing that called, whole yeah. yeah, but specific right now with a woman called Myrtle Wilson, who's married to George Wilson, who becomes important later, um, and then Daisy and Gatsby begin an affair. There's one. There's I'm pretty sure there's another affair somewhere. Um, between Tom and oh, uh, no, do you mean Jordan and Nick? May, may possibly Jordan and Nick, although they're not technically cheating on anyone. And I, I enjoy oh, that. Oh, she cheats at golf big time. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, there's supposed to be this sort of like wonderful, happy marriage with the, the two sort of old money mm-hmm. people and they've got their new baby and they're living in this lovely house and they're supposed to live out the rest of their lives in sort of fulfilment. And then even though George and Myrtle Wilson are a lot poorer and they live in the Valley of Ashes and stuff, that's still supposed to be there their American, well hopefully that they get out of it, but their marriage is part of the American dream. And yet it's all, the idea that people can fit into boxes and be happy for the rest of their lives is so unrealistic. And the novel reflects that a lot. And what does Gatsby try to do? He tries to escape that box of being a poor penniless army officer. Mm. Uh, and in, in some ways he succeeds, even, um, uh, not saying what happens, but in some ways he succeeds because, never mind him as a, uh, as a person, who do we remember? Well, he's played by Leonardo DiCaprio, he's been played by, by you know, great actors. I think he, he's, tra- he's not escaping, he's trading one box for another. He wants mm. to be in the sort of like affluent, everything, be rich enough to sort of get Daisy back or whatever. So it's not, it's never that he wants to live purely outside of all of those things. It's just he wants to be in the box. But isn't that what he wants? Isn't that how it sort of crosses two genres? Because you have him attempting to live the American dream, but it's not for the sake of the American dream as we would think of it. But it's for like drag up as it's for fair. it's for love. <laughs> so <laughs> I I don't know. I think there's something of a tragic romance about the Great Gatsby. But again, it's not what I take away from the book when I think yeah. of it, but now if I'm looking at the actual facts the of it, well, again, spoilers. <laughs> um, but one thing I do think that's really like romantic is the him doing the green light over the bay to check that Daisy can see the green light over the bay. And I saw something a while ago, I mentioned this to you guys earlier, Yeah. <laughs> a post that said, Rip uh, Jay Gatsby would have loved green light by Lord, and I completely agree. <laughs> I'm afraid I don't know that particular uh, song. Um, and I think, yeah, it, it, is it romantic? Well, um, this is almost Fitzgerald's own own judgment. Chapter six, Gatsby uh, is determined to reunite with Daisy. It's not going perfectly. Um, and Nick says, well, I wouldn't too ask too much of her, I ventured. You can't repeat the past. Can't repeat the past? He cried incredulously. Why, of course you can. He looked around himself wildly, as if the past were lurking in the shadow of this house, just out of reach of his hand. Almost as if, um, yeah, so, so yes, it's romantic. I, I, I very much agree. The, the, the heart in me says, go, you go, Gatsby, you get that job. <laughs> but the head in me says, no, you're just breaking up a marriage, or, or an, an awful one, sure, but you're breaking up a marriage. And um, uh, so, uh, well, of course, he's already deeply implicated in criminality, so I doubt it plays on his conscience much anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but that element of, um, yes, it's, it's lovely to be romantic, it's lovely to 
think about what else is life for, right? But we also have to acknowledge the price we pay for that. Yeah, I think also, sorry, the, the sort of, you were saying before about the kind of built on the illusion of wealth and not real wealth. I think it's really interesting With the stock market specifically, yes. Daisy, I think, she, I think she discontinues the affair when she learns that his money is made off bootlegging and stuff. Yeah. Um, it's also well. It's also the hotel scene where where essentially Gatsby forces her to choose. Yeah. Um, and uh, we played fantastically in the Baz Luhrmann film, which, although it's not perfect, I, I think does capture some of the spirit of, of the Great Gatsby. Mm. So um, why should you read this book? Um, it's got the as as I said the kind of beautiful language. I'd probably recommend it for fourteen or fifteen upwards, uh, depending. Um, um, and yeah, it's. Uh, Although it gives you a very specific insight into 1920s America and um, a, a slice of it anyway, so it's not quite a history book, but it does give you a, a feeling of, of a very different era to ours, it's also still universal. So whether it be, let's say, uh, illusory wealth, well, we're repeating that with Bitcoin, aren't we, and uh, mm-hmm. the st- stocks and, <laughs> and so on. Um, whether it be um, the superficiality of our friendships, well, none of us are perfect. We're all sometimes attracted to a bit of glitz and glamour and, uh, and so on. Um, so, yeah, it's, it works on so many different levels that Gatsby has, uh, Fitzgerald rather, has captured um, something quite essentially human, um, the attraction almost of ridiculous nonsense. Mm-hmm. Because what is life without a little bit of nonsense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's probably a good place to end it, although I would like to talk a lot more about this and As we would could I. have another, yeah, we're running out of time. So, But, thanks. dear listeners, I hope, if nothing else, that you go away and read the book and uh, come and challenge us about our ideas as well. <laughs> yes, so thank you very much for agreeing to be on the podcast. Thank you. Oh, thank you for thank the privilege. You. It's been a pleasure. This has been Wickham High's Talk Us Through podcast with Olivia, Eloise, Saskia and Mr. Fudge. Thank you for listening.